Hello, my name's Andrew Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor. And you are listening to episode 13 of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. A couple of episodes ago, I started to talk about the important elements that make a character an individual, and we covered descriptive markers and character weaknesses. In this episode, I want to look at character motivation, and in particular, three aspects of character motivation. And those three aspects are, one, that the character's motivation is evident in the nature of the character themselves and in their interactions with others. Two, that their motivations are reasonable and understandable by us, the reader. Even if we think what they're doing is crazy or bizarre or comic or wrong or whatever it is, at least we can understand why the character is doing what they do. And third, finally, that the motivations of characters help to drive the plot along. So let's explore these aspects with some examples. First and foremost, readers must be able to see a character's motivation. It must be evident in the nature of who the character is, as well as in their interaction with others. So for example, if we consider the Lord of the Rings, and specifically to Samwise Gamgee, he is motivated by gardening. He loves gardening. He's always going to love gardening. It's in his nature. That's a part of who he is, and it's a part of the context of the story. It exists before he interacts with anybody. As another example of a character having motivation just through who they are, consider Ernest Hemingway's book, The Old Man and the Sea. The very first sentence of that book says this. He was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream, and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish. That's the very first sentence, and contained within it is the information that we need to know that this is a fisherman, we know that he's stubborn, we know that he won't give up. And that's a context for much of what happens throughout the book. So characters should have some motivation by virtue of their personality and just by virtue of their context in the story. But then we move on to character interaction. So if we go back to the example of Sam Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings, we see that another one of Sam's primary motivations, perhaps his most fundamental motivation, is to protect and be loyal to Frodo. But we only see that motivation through his interaction with other characters in the book. Let me give you another example of how one character interacting with others can show us her true motivations. In the Harry Potter series, we see one of the best representations of a healthy family in all of literature, and that's the Weasleys. And Mrs Weasley, the mum, is deeply motivated to care for and to protect her family, and by extension, Harry himself. And we see this through her interactions with her husband, her children, and with Harry. So motivation must be evident in the nature of the character, who they are, and in their interactions with others. But it must also be reasonable. And by this, I mean that the reader must understand why a character behaves as they do. They don't have to approve of the character's actions. They don't have to condone them. They don't have to even remotely think that they would do the same thing themselves. But they must understand them. They must conceive of why the character should do that. If your readers don't understand how your character's actions are connected to their motivations, they will become confused and alienated and they may well leave your story. So, for example, again, if we turn to The Lord of the Rings... We can understand Frodo's motivation to destroy the ring, even though it costs him a great deal, even though he suffers a great deal. His motivation is reasonable. Let me give you another example of a character whose motivations we can understand, even if we don't agree with them. In Dickens' Oliver Twist, we can understand Fagin's love of money. We may not approve of his lifestyle, but we can understand why he acts in the way he does. And finally, without revealing too much, the best example in popular literature I can think of for this 
is the character and motivation, a game from Harry Potter of Severus Snape. That character is a great case study in motivation and, of course, how that can drive the story. And for the sake of not giving anything away, I won't say any more than that, but if you've read the series, you will know what I mean. So character motivations must be evident in the context of the character themselves and in their interaction with others. And it must also be reasonable. It must be understandable to the reader. But it must also drive the plot. This is especially true in two particular scenarios. The first of which would be where two characters are opposed to each other and they are motivated in a way which means they will come into conflict with each other. And the second is where two characters very much want to be together. And in that instance, you can drive the plot by keeping them apart. If your story is about two lovers and they meet and are happily together on the first page, the reader can understand the motivation of the characters and that motivation is reasonable. But because that motivation is fulfilled pretty much straight away, your story is going to lose momentum pretty quickly. Or imagine you have a story about two characters who search for precious stones, gems and diamonds. Your protagonist and your antagonist have both heard of a rare gem and go after it. And that's fine. But if they go after different gems and they operate far apart and never meet then your story falls apart. If there is not some kind of thwarted desire, if there is not some kind of passion amongst the characters to achieve a certain thing, and that passion is halted in some way, if there is not direct conflict driven by motivation, then your story will run out of steam. By way of another example, I want to read two passages to you. One where the character motivations are hidden and confusing and are likely to throw the reader off, and the other where the principles I've talked about are applied. The important thing here is not really the passages themselves, but how these principles apply to your work. So as you listen to them, especially the second passage, think about your protagonist, your antagonist in the current project that you're working on. Are their motivations evident? Are they reasonable? Do they drive the plot? Here's the first passage. On the fifth day of our trip, I looked out to sea and saw our next destination, an island the locals called Isla de la Moor, the island of love. I'd signed up for this excursion when I joined, of course, and I was looking forward to visiting the island, exploring the beach and having a look around. Everyone on board was excited about the trip and the captain gave us a little talk on what to expect, as he usually did before we went ashore. He joked that from this distance, the shape of the island was like the shape of a woman lying on a bed of silk. And I'm sure he was right. We came ashore and were all very keen to explore the place, so we made our way up from the beach at a bit of a run. There were two particular places that our captain wanted us to visit. The first spot was a beautiful location at the top of a gradually rising hill in the centre of the island. We stopped and had some refreshments and dug about amongst the trees and shrubs and there was a wonderful view down to the bay. The afternoon sky held the promise of a gorgeous sunset and we stayed there a while and then the captain, with an eye on other traffic out at sea, took us back to the ship. We were a bit disappointed to miss out on the second spot that he'd recommended but we collected our souvenirs and scampered back tired from our excursion. When we were back on board, the captain gathered us together and we reflected on our day visiting the Isle de la Moor. It was around this time, as the evening was drawing in, that the captain passed me one of his own guns and some ammunition, for which I was very grateful. So this is a rather odd passage. The narrator seems to be amongst a bunch of people who are on a ship and they go off on an excursion. But when you listen to the story, there are some things in it just don't quite make sense. Probably the standout odd bit is where the captain seems to give the narrator a gun. It also seems odd that the excursion party don't visit both sites on the island. Now a big part of the problem with this passage is that you as the listener or the reader have no clue really as to the motivations of the characters, especially the two main characters, the captain and the narrator. What are they up to? As readers, you don't know because you don't really have a sufficient understanding of the story and the motivation of the people in it. 
and you could be forgiven for disengaging completely, either because it makes no sense at all and you don't think it will ever make sense, or because you're just trying to work out what's going on. So let's look at this story again, and as I read it, I would ask that you think about the three aspects of character motivation that I talked about earlier. So that is it, that the motivation is evident, it's reasonable, and it drives the plot. It's a week since I joined the crew of the Sapphire as ship's boy, under Captain Fortune and his crew. They're a rough lot, but it's a better life than I've ever had in my 11 years on God's earth, and I'm certainly glad to be out of that orphanage in South London. Already the captain has taken a shine to me, and he asked me to keep my ears open around the crew, so that I might tell him what the men are talking about. And on the fifth day out of port, we were roused from our slumber by a cry of land from the lookout. We scrambled up to the portside rail and looked out across the sea where we spied our next destination, an island the locals call Isla de l'Amour, the island of love. I was looking forward to visiting the island, exploring the beach and looking for treasure of course. Everyone on board was excited about the trip and the captain gave us a talk about what to expect as he usually did before we went ashore. He joked that from this distance the island looked like the shape of a woman lying on a smooth bed of silk and I'm sure he was right. We came ashore and were all very keen to get on with it, so we made our way up from the beach at a bit of a run. The captain led the way. He'd done me the great honour of showing me his map the previous evening, and there were two spots marked on the parchment. Our first stop was at the top of a gradually rising hill in the centre of the island. The captain called a halt, and we all had a swig of the old grog, and then we dug about amongst the trees and shrubs. The afternoon sky held the promise of a gorgeous sunset. We stayed there for a while, digging out great holes in the ground, till we managed to find an old chest. The captain took charge of it straight away, but then someone spied another vessel out on the horizon. It might have been the Beaufort of the East India Company. She'd been tracking us these past three days. Or maybe it was the captain's most deadly enemy, Captain Blackbeard, out to steal the treasure for himself. Either way, the captain ordered us back to the ship double quick, so we slung the booty on a pallet and scampered back, weary with the sun on our backs. When we were back on board, the captain gave orders for the chest to be placed in his own quarters and for the ship to make passage to Santiago with all haste. He urged the men to get us moving immediately or the very fires of hell in the form of East India cannonballs would fall upon us. Men scampered about the ship while the captain retired to his quarters, admitting no one save myself and I only permitted entry when I had food and drink for him. When he did admit me to his cabin, he asked me to lock the door after me. I could see the chest on the table. Open it, he said to me. I hesitated, fearing that to do so would incur his anger. Open it, boy, now! I did as I was told, and on my mother's own grave, so I swear I have never seen so many precious and sparkling things in one place. Gold coins and trinkets, jewels and finery. It was a wonder to behold. Impressed, are you? It's such a haul as I've never seen before, sir, I said. And to your young eyes it may seem so, said Captain Fortune. But it's barely half of what we were expecting. The men will be angry tonight. There will be things said, unpleasant things. I stared in wonder with my eyes moving from the captain to the loot. I want you to take this, he said, and he passed me his second flintlock pistol. I was used to the weapon, of course, since I had to clean and oil it for him. You know how to use this, boy? I nodded, thinking I would not dare say no. You're a liar, boy. Now watch carefully, we don't have much time. The captain showed me how to add powder to the barrel, load a pellet with a patch, add powder to the pan and cock the gun. He placed two pellets in my hand. If you need any more than that, he said, grinning, you're probably dead. You're not such a bad ship's boy, Jim, and it would not suit me to see you dead on the deck with your brains hanging out. He handed me the pistol. The weapon felt heavy and warm on the grip where he'd been holding it. Now, he said, adjusting his three-cornered hat, let's go and reason with these scoundrels. With any luck, I can persuade them that we can be back in the island before the new moon, grab the rest of the treasure, and then every man will have his share. He picked up his own pistol 
slid back the bolt of his cabin door and I followed him out into the cool evening air. So here's a very different interpretation on the story and obviously I've added a slight accent for good or ill but the end of it as well has been extended to make the points that I want to cover here. The story has been transformed because now we see much more of the characters' motivations. So let's look at the characters themselves first of all. Our narrator is an orphaned boy. So we see why he's awed by the adventure he's on. We see why he would welcome escape from a horrible life in a South London orphanage. And because of his age, we can even see why he doesn't really understand the sexual connotation of Captain Fortune's reference to the island being like a woman lying on a bed. He's only a lad, and he doesn't really understand what's being said here. He just idolises the captain, and so he believes them. We see why the captain is driven to look for treasure. It's who he is. It's what he does. And what about character interaction? There's a bond between the boy and the captain. They like each other. They look out for each other. The boy reports back to the captain on the mood of the crew, and the captain seeks to defend the boy in the only way he knows, by giving him a gun. Now, we see why the captain gave the boy a gun. It was, in fact, to protect him from the other pirates. We might not have done that in his position, but we understand his motivation. It is, in that sense, reasonable. We see why the boy is glad to be amongst a rough lot of pirates. His alternative was an orphanage, and he was clearly unhappy there. Again, what he's doing, his motivations are reasonable. We understand why the crew leave the island when they do, with the threat of enemies bearing down on them. And we understand why they're visiting the island in the first place, digging holes. We understand why the crew might revolt as well when there isn't enough loot to go round. Again, all of the motivations of the people involved here, the characters, are reasonable. And finally, we see why the motivation of these characters, especially our two protagonists, will drive the plot. In fact, will drive a main plot, which is a group of pirates after some treasure, and also a subplot, perhaps, of what will happen to the boy. The point of this is not for you to think that this little story is good or bad. It's for you to think about motivation in the context of your own work. So here are some questions again for you to think about. Do your characters have motivation? Is that motivation evident through who they are and through their interaction with other characters? Is that motivation reasonable? Would your readers look at what your character's doing and say, yes, I understand why they're doing that? And lastly, does it drive the plot? These questions will help you determine whether you've got the motivation of your characters right. I hope you found all of this useful. In this episode, I have referred to The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by HarperCollins, the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, published by Bloomsbury, Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, which is in the public domain, and I've also quoted from The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, published by Arrow. That's all for this episode. I hope you found it useful. I always welcome your comments. You can go to goodreads.com and uh, join us at the Creative Writers Toolbelt group there. I'm on Twitter at Writers Toolbelt and you can email me. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.